Welcome to The Laws of Style, featuring conversations on creativity, fashion, and the law from the leading edge of our economy and culture. Hosted by noted fashion lawyer, Douglas Hand. Welcome to the podcast, The Laws of Style. Downloading to you from the work from home offices of HBA, the fashion law firm. I'm your host, Douglas Hand, fashion lawyer, fashion law professor. I'm joined today by menswear designer and good friend, David Hart. David, thanks for joining. My pleasure. Great to be here. Yeah. Well, so, you know, this is the new new. We are, um, we're, we're podcasting from, uh, from uh, my offices by uh, Central Park, but where are you, uh, where are you zooming in from? So I'm right outside the Navy Yard in Brooklyn. For our listeners who may not know, uh, your, your early upbringing in, in Maryland and um, your, your early design work, um, you got started really early. When exactly yes, did you first start designing? So I took a home economics sewing class. I was about 16 years old. Um, I was really interested in the craft of sewing and the art form of it. And it was something that I really fell in love with. And by my senior year, I was making prom dresses for all of my friends. And I actually submit a portfolio to the Fashion Group International. And I won a scholarship that I used to go to FIT here in New York. Uh, and that was 20 years ago. Yeah, time flies, doesn't it? Well, so <laughs> FIT, you know, you're, you're one of uh, our proud alums, along with, you know, Michael Coors and Calvin Klein and many, many others. Um, what was that experience like as, you know, technical training? And now you, you are a professor there. So, so yes. maybe you can talk about, you know, what, what changes you see, um, you know, just given 20 years ago versus today, the way that you were trained and the way that maybe you're training today. Sure. Um, yeah, um, I, I know you just mentioned I'm, I'm teaching two classes there uh, in, in the menswear department. I teach um, advanced portfolio. So I'm helping the kids put their portfolio to get together and and build collections. Um, you know, the thing that really hasn't changed um, with the program is is just the intensity and, and the rigor of it. Um, you know, it's so technical. You come in, you learn how to sew, you learn drafting, pattern making, grading. Um, and now there's a big push for, um, for computer-aided design, for 3D, 3D rendering. Right. Um, you know, the technology aspect is, is so incredible um, and just how fast the industry is, is progressing. We're doing a lot with like WebPDM and, and developing collections digitally, which is really, uh, really, you know, perfect for the time we're living in. Well, after graduation, um, you, you had some great, some great gigs with, with large companies, but also small companies. You started with uh, one, of, one of HBA's clients, uh, Anna Sui. Yes. Uh, and then moved on to some of the, the, the really big household names uh, in American fashion um, with Ralph Lauren and Calvin Klein. Maybe talk about the difference between, you know, working for the more nimble and kind of, um, I guess, broader work that you had to do while at Anna Sui versus yes. Ralph and Calvin, which are huge enterprises, obviously. And I imagine your work there was quite a bit narrower. Yes. Yes. So, um, you know, it really is, is interesting. I mean, one thing that um, I'm really thankful for is that my first job out of school was with Anna Sui because it was working with a very established global brand um, that still operated on a smaller scale. So I was directly working with Anna, which really was the best experience that 
um, a young designer can have. And, you know, right out of school, I was also working with all of the different departments. So we were working with the pattern makers. There was an in-house atelier, sales, production. Um, so, you know, that was an experience that really is unrivaled by any type of experience you'll get going to a bigger company like Tommy or Ralph or Calvin, where um, most of what I was doing was working on tech packs. So like those jobs were very specialized, focused on one category. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's very different. It's a very merchandise driven uh, business. So you don't necessarily work on as many categories and, and you don't have as much going on as you do in a, in a smaller house. Well, so 09, you launched what, um, you started where Ralph started, you know, you, you yes. launched the neckwear line. <laughs> what was the thinking behind that? And, and, and maybe let's just use that as, as, as a way to describe um, and discuss kind of the current state of menswear and, and neckwear in particular, as, as many have kind of prognosticated that that is a dying business. Yeah, well, sure. I mean, that was such an interesting time for menswear. And my thinking behind that was really, you know, all of my, my experience up to that point was in women's wear. And I thought more interesting uh, things were happening in menswear at the time. And because my corporate experience was all in women's, you know, I was interviewing, trying to get jobs in menswear, but no one would hire me. Uh, because they're like, well, you do women's, you don't do men's. So I decided to start out on my own with something small with neckwear. And, you know, that was such an interesting time for, for neckwear because, um, you know, everything was this like heavy woven silk. And I saw that there was an opportunity to bring in these more novelty fabrics like wools and tartans and shirting fabrics, um, just knit ties coming back slimming the ties down and you know it was really exciting because our first account was Bergdorf Goodman and it sold out really quickly so um, the tie business kind of gradually snowballed into the full collection that I'm continuing to work on now. Right so that was 2013, 2012 roughly that you you started yep. with the full collection yes. and um, how, how has that evolved from from tailoring tailored clothing offerings early, quite a bit of recognition, I think, in formal wear, um, which is, you know, you, you put me in, in tuxedos, which, uh, you know, we'll, we'll throw some, some shots of us together at CFDA Awards and, and other yeah. places, but your tuxedos are magnificent. Oh, thank um, you. To today, where, you know, obviously tailored clothing is, is an area that uh, is evolving, and getting more casual and and you with that have uh, evolved and and offered really some pretty notable knits yes yeah uh we've started to layer a lot more sportswear into the collection uh we've had a lot of success with fine gauge knitwear that we're making um in italy but still the the big bulk of the businesses is formal wear and tuxedos which is fantastic because People are always getting married, so they're always coming to us for, um, for tuxedos for weddings, which is really uh, interesting. And, you know, going back to tailored clothing, you know, we keep hearing like, oh, the suit is dead, the suit is dead, but I, I never think the suit will really be dead. I think it's just evolving. And, you know, if you know, you, just the industry, it's very uh, circular. So it comes back around 
And, uh, you know, the challenge for any designer, I think, is just waiting for that circle to come back around to the point where, you know, your, your business is, is having a moment. There's some commentary that, that formal wear and formal dressing, once there is a, you know, an, an end to uh, the type of social distancing we're seeing today, uh, will come kind of roaring back because people are kind of sick of sitting around in their sweats all day <laughs> and only dressing perhaps from the waist up, although I assure you I, I have pants and shoes on. Um, don't, know, don't know about you. Um, what do you think about that? Eric Jennings was, was, was one such commentator in that article yeah. uh, and others kind of uh, surmising that, that this would actually see an uptick uh, whenever we get sort of back out and about. Yeah, I mean, I, I could see it going either way. Um, you know, I think people have been so used to now living for the past uh, month and a half with the bare minimum. So, um, you know, I think people are going to start making more educated purchases. It'll be less excessive buying. But what I feel like people will start doing is just buying, buying better quality, um, investing in pieces and having a more minimal wardrobe full of classics and things that they can wear. Um, one thing that a lot of um, uh, people have been talking about is like uh, developing a uniform, um, even if it's for work from home. And I think that's something that will spill out into daily life. And, you know, to your question about uh, if there will be this big boom and people wanting to dress up and, and go out again, I, I think absolutely. I mean, I think we're going to be seeing a lot more events. Uh, I think guys really will be excited about dressing up again and everyone will be um, excited about getting rid of the sweats and, and you know, putting on a great tuxedo or, or some great uh, streetwear or sportswear, whatever they've been uh, looking at uh, online uh, and on television during their time at home. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've won a lot of awards. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, you were a finalist in the CFDA Vogue Fashion Fund. Yes. Uh, you were named Best New Menswear Designer of America uh, by GQ. Uh, Council of Fashion Designer of America uh, inductee in 2015. Um, what do you think about sort of the, 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 the game show element? Or the um, you know, I, I think it's, it was great for me personally. I mean, it really um, opened up my network and, and put me in with a circle of industry professionals and other designers that's really um, helped me develop um, kind of a support group. You know, I, I feel like I made life, lifelong friends with some of the designers that um, I was in the Vogue Fashion Fund with, and we all keep in touch. We all talk. Um, so, so that, that aspect is, is really fantastic. And, you know, the great thing about, you know, um, all of the awards and CFDAs, it really is a community. Um, you know, I feel like everyone's been so supportive, especially during COVID times. Um, people are, are making masks, people are, are reaching out about, you know, where they are with business loans, with strategies to, to move forward once things start to open up. And, you know, if I wouldn't have been um, a part of these programs, I wouldn't have, have had access to, to that community. So, um, you know, I think it's, it's, it's really 
an interesting time. Um, and, you know, going back to how big the fashion industry is, it isn't just about um, us as designers. It employs so many retail workers around the world, factory workers, people that you don't see that, that work behind the scenes. And, you know, one thing that I'm hopeful for is, is you know, that these times with COVID, um, it'll really give a face and a story to a lot of those people who are often overlooked. Yeah, well, that's a great point, David. I mean, there is a, a massive trickle-down effect, right, of the inability for people to, to go shop and purchase. The front lines of that are obviously the retailers, but that hits the brands, and that ultimately hits the factory workers, the garment workers, and they are really the, the, the least able to absorb it when you consider that a lot of garment workers subsist on $2 a day. I mean, they are notoriously underpaid, overworked, and um, we're seeing that. And I think those stories should come out. I think um, that may well change people's buying habits post-COVID, or I don't know that there's a post-COVID, but you know, when, once we are back into a, a more normal routine, uh, and that is a good thing. This is an opportunity industry-wide to shed a light on that. And I think consumers do want to know. Transparency has been one of the big issues in the yep. industry. Uh, are, are there things you do through your brand to, to increase that transparency? Sure. Uh, I mean, one thing that the brand has always been committed to is, is working with the best factories, with the best conditions. And, you know, unfortunately, it reflects in our price, you know, like we, we do get pushback from people like, why is this so expensive? But once you explain that, you know, you're working with factories here in New York City and the Garment District in New Jersey and Italy, and, you know, all of these workers are being treated fairly, they're, they're getting good wages and the quality of the work they're doing is fantastic. You know, people really start to understand that price. I mean... I'm sure we've all seen it. People are so dismissive of designer brands because they think there's this um, this kind of inflation in the price. And a lot of times it is um, just the materials and the craft and the workmanship. Right. And, you know, that's something that uh, the brands, in my opinion, need to be um, a little more eloquent in how they're they're passing that information on to customers and the general public. For sure. And, and the fact that we don't need that much, back to your uniform point, and, and that work for home may also increase uh, people's comfort level appearing pretty similar, um, you know, throughout the week as opposed to really peacocking and, 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 and having completely different outfits and feeling like, oh, I was Instagrammed in that, I can never wear it again. Right. Uh, hopefully that's a thing of the past because as you and I both know, upwards of 70% of most newly produced garments wind up burned or in the planet. And yeah. that's not a sustainable practice. Well, also just, just adding on to that, I mean, I think there's going to be this huge resurgence and just great vintage clothing that people will be seeking out to add into their wardrobe. I mean, you know, going beyond just the real, real and grailed and the secondary market, um, you know, we're seeing so many garments that are just becoming collector's items and people are going crazy bidding for these on, on auctions. I mean, there's Margella auctions now at Sotheby's and Christie's and, yeah. 
You know, that's a great thing because obviously the most sustainable practice is just not to make something new at all. And I I also think it's a great, it's a great indicia of, of someone's ability to put together vintage pieces and, and find them. That is, uh, that's, that's a nice hallmark of style, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, well, so getting a little legal, uh, on the laws of style as we do, uh, David Hart is the man, is the brand. So, so you chose to, to name your company and your brand after yourself. I know you and I have spoken on panels about this. Um, what, what went into that decision and has it presented any challenges for you, whether through licensing uh, the trademark or, or financing the company? Yeah. Um, I mean, that's a, it's a great question. Um, I thought the name was great. I mean, I'm impartial to it. Um, but I always had this idea of having the brand, um, named after me, but of course it, it presents, Trouble. I mean, I know so many designers that have ended up losing their name, that uh, have gotten into um, bad deals and took taken investments that didn't really um, pan out, and then they were unable to use their name because someone else had owned a big part of the company and they were barred from using it. So um, it's something that we always have to be careful about as designers like who we're who are working with um, who are getting in into into deals with and also just protecting the name and the integrity uh, of the brand yeah yeah for sure it's obviously a almost a default for many designers like artists um, to 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 use their own name it, it clearly indicates authenticity but it does present potential problems if you're in a position like say Joseph Aboud has been in a couple of times of, of selling his company uh, and then you know, wanting to continue to design, still being a vital uh, active designer and wanting to do that. But clearly for consumers that presents some confusion when you know, Jill Sander is a woman and designs for some other house and there is a Jill Sander brand that right. she's not designing for, and that's but one example. Um, two, maybe more personal questions. I know you've always been inspired by some of the great photographers, um, and you're 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 a modest collector. I think you've got some nice pieces. Um, talk to me about that. You know how that love developed, and does it inform your design in any way? Of course. Um, you know, I was always exposed to photography from a young age. And, you know, my first uh, memory of it is my, my grandfather was um, an avid vernacular photographer who documented family life um, after coming back from the war. Well, I, even during World War II, um, and then coming back, starting a family and he had everything organized by year with slides. And, you know, one of the favorite things that, that um, I would do when I visited New York as a child would be um, looking at slides with my grandfather and just being fascinated by, um, you know, all the slides, they were, were shot on chrome back then. So the colors were hyper-saturated and everything looked like candy. And it was just kind of this bright, colorful world that uh, you could, be uh, encapsulated by. Um, So that was really exciting. And then 
You know, as I developed my interest in fashion, um, you know, looking at Vogue and Harper's Bazaar and, and W, you know, you get access to some of the greatest artists that were working with these magazines like Richard Avedon and Irving Penn and even going back further to people like Lisette Modell, um, all of these great uh, New York school um, photographers. And, you know, it, it always fascinated me that, you know, there was this push-pull between like art and commerce with photography where, you know, these were fashion photographs, but they were also being considered fine art by collectors. And um, the, the aspect of just visual storytelling was, was amazing. And they were working with people like Alexei Brodovich, who uh, was an amazing art director. Um, and uh, Dr. Agha was at uh, Vogue. And he um, developed the first like full page spread, taking a photograph and filling the whole page with it. And that was so radical at the time. So, you know, it's interesting because, you know, the, the publications had, um, had this um, ability to really bring in these artists and do something radical at the time. And that's why they're still such, such important cultural elements to us today. For sure. Uh, so with publishing, not yet dead, but really crawling maybe into the own, its own grave that it dug for itself. Um, what are the opportunities you see for visual storytelling for brands today? And, and how do you go about doing it? Sure. Um, you know, every brand has a story to tell. Um, and one thing that's so important to me is just storytelling and you know one one great thing about being a brand is you get to kind of build your little team of creatives so you get to work with um, amazing photographers product stylists hair and makeup people and everyone puts together their little crew and then I feel like there are like editors and writers and buyers that also really support and nurture that vision so um, it, it, it really is um, always about storytelling. How, how uh, b because most of those people and organizations are an amalgam of independent contractors, right? We, we know that, uh, but perhaps the world doesn't know that a brand often engages eight different consulting firms or consultants to, to really put an image out there uh, or campaign. Uh, during the COVID relief um, attempts, <laughs> a lot of those people uh, have had a real struggle in um, getting unemployment uh, for some, uh, in, in getting uh, payroll protection if, if they're you know, small firms. What are, what are your thoughts on that sort of macro? And um, how, did, how did David Hart, uh, the company, uh, address that during this time? I mean, it's, it's been a struggle for us. I mean, um, we've applied for both the payroll protection and the EIDL loans, and we haven't gotten either. And, you know, we keep hearing that the funds for the second round now will probably be gone today or tomorrow, and today is 1st of May. Um, if you're so comfortable mentioning, I mean, what bank did you submit it through? I submit through TD. Okay. Bank. And then the EIDL is just right through the SBA and right. we haven't heard 
um, anything back. So I, I don't know. Uh, we're staying hopeful. Um, we applied for the CFDA common thread and there's, right. also, um, there's also an artist relief grant that, that I applied for. So, you know, we'll, we'll see. Um, you know, I, I'm not the only one in this boat. I mean, obviously I'm in touch with, with many of my other colleagues, designers, and they've all applied. And I, I don't know that any of them have received it. So we're all... Well, the other thing really pinching people is exposure to wholesale account bankruptcies. And here, COVID coming right after the Barney's bankruptcy and absolutely demolishing, I think, any chance for Neiman Marcus to emerge without going into bankruptcy. As of the date of this recording, they, they haven't filed, but they will once this go, goes live, I'm sure. Um, have you been exposed to any of those situations where you've shipped, you've got accounts receivable with what used to be a large and very steady payer, uh, and now because they're in bankruptcy, your pre-petition accounts receivable is behind essentially every creditor that is owed significant sums ahead of you? Uh, I've been fortunate that, um, you know, we, we got some of this, like, all of the spring orders were were shipped early, so so we got all of our um, all of our payables. But now fall, I mean, we're not able to produce anything, so that will probably just be put on hold until things open up. Um, you know, what I'm hoping is to really focus on direct to consumer moving forward, and as soon as things open up, just have have some orders ready to give to our factories so they can get back to work and they can have some revenue um, coming in. And, you know, that's, that's really what I can hope for. But yeah, going back to what you said, I mean, I've heard horror stories of people that ship hundreds of thousands of dollars of orders and the accounts are either canceling orders, not accepting them, returning them or not paying. And, you know, a lot of smaller brands that will just put them out of business because, you know, that's that's the money that we rely on to pay our factories and then to create the next season. So maybe on to how you're dealing with, you know, being cooped up and, um, you know, what your day is like. And, and uh, you know, as a, as a creative professional, uh, I imagine there can be some real challenges uh, being somewhat in the same space all the time. Yeah, um, I've been spending probably too much time on on social media, um, but more so just trying to keep our our um, you know our clients and our customers engaged and letting them know, hey, like I'm not trying to push any product on you guys now during this time, but um, you know we're here for you if if you need something, and just letting them know that you know, when we get back to work, like we'll have new product, we'll be here um, for them. Also, I've had a fantastic opportunity to kind of dive back into some research and, and start uh, looking at some of the books that I have here that I haven't had a ton of time to, to look at and um, hopefully have some great collections like planned out once things open up again. Yeah, it's 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 been interesting to 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 actually look at your shelves, right? Um, yeah. For, for 
for so many of us, it's just decor in the apartment. Most of us love books, but uh, it's been nice to, to take them off the shelf and, and, and reread many of them. Absolutely. Uh, for sure. Uh, how about when you do venture out um, and you mask up? Uh, obviously, safety is, is the first and foremost um, importance there, but do you have any, any tips to the extent people want to do that in a way that, that might look better or be somewhat stylish while assuring that what they're doing is um, CDC compliant as much as it can be. Yeah, sure. I mean, going to your point, like safety, safety first. So um, also if you have the N95 masks, you should donate them or leave them for essential workers. Um, but you know, the, the great thing about um, menswear and some of the shirting fabric, uh, especially coming out of Italy, like Albini and Alumo, like, these fabrics are in such high thread counts. Um, you know, they're, they're, uh, they would be great for, for making masks out of that you could match to your shirt. So when you're at your shirt maker, um, you could have them make a mask. And then it also just reduces waste as well. So um, instead of throwing out, you know, the scraps or whatever's left over, you can have um, a really high thread count mask that goes back to you know, your, your outfit and shows a little bit of your, your personal style. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I've, I've been dabbling with, with trying to convert some of my old dress shirts in that way, but, but less matching them. I, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm of the mind that uh, I want a little differentiation between my mask and uh, you know, we're in uncharted style territory for sure. But uh, yeah. I view it maybe a little bit more as, as an accessory, as maybe you'd view the tie or the pocket square and want some. I, I think we're gonna see a big, big new market um, come out of this. I mean, it's, I don't wanna say it's unfortunate. I mean, it's, it's great and you know, it's great that people um, will start to take it seriously and, and um, try to be safe. But, you know, I guess, I guess it's the reality that we're, we're living in now. So, what other menswear brands uh, do you appreciate or gravitate to or, or get inspired by? Sure. Um, you know, I, I always feel like I look to more of the European um, houses. And for me, um, you know, I, I really love what Eddie Sleman is doing at, at Celine Men's. I feel like I, I get all of his references. His references. Um, it's kind of like this 80s interpretation, like the 80s synthwave interpretation of the 60s, yeah. um, these great 70s references. And I, I really love how he um, has looked back to the original DNA of, of the brand and reissued a lot of the styles in a new way. Um, I also really like what Daniel Lee has done at uh, Bottega Veneta, this kind of minimal tailoring. I think it's, it's really cool. And I think it's the direction that a lot of menswear um, will be moving in, um, more of like a minimalism, like kind of 90s uh, Jill Sander, uh, that, kind of, that kind of mood. As far as unisex, which... Uh, you know, pre-pandemic was an emerging category with some brands fully 
dedicated to that statement that we are a unisex brand and, and uh, you know, there, there is no divide, there is no, there is no yep. line. Do you think there's a future in that? And do you think in some ways, oddly, the, the, the time that we are housebound uh, is, is good for that business? I think it's, I personally think that is the future. Um, I think we're going to see just genderless department stores, um, people just wear um, whatever they, they want to wear. I mean, so many of my clients are, are women. Um, they just want like a great fitting suit and they can't find that in, in a women's department. Um, they want something with more structure that, that works better um, for them and, and their lifestyle. So, you know, I, I think, you know, the one thing I'd say is I feel like when we hear about like genderless dressing, um, we don't really hear as much about um, the women's aspect of, of that. So, um, you know, it's, it's definitely, um, definitely an interesting time for, for people to experiment with their wardrobes and, and think, about, you know, less, gender gender conforming restrictions in terms to how they're dressing yeah women in tuxedos is is a personal favorite yeah i think they look <laughs> great uh when speaking of tuxedos uh, do you have any i i, I know for select uh, people uh you 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 have made tuxedos anything right now on order and or is that business right now just absolutely dead well, we have some, um, some weddings that were coming up that have now been postponed, but uh, we have a couple in our shop now waiting for fittings um, that uh, would have been would have been happening this summer, um, but now they're they've been postponed until next year. So um, you know, we're just kind of waiting for for things to open back up so we can get back to work and you know everyone's been really understanding um i think everyone is just having more compassion for each other in general well david that's a wrap thanks Thank for you. coming on yeah, my uh, pleasure. yeah i look forward to uh not socially distancing with you very very <laughs> soon thank you all right bye everybody you've been listening to the laws of style with douglas hand for more information, go to our website at www.hballp.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at, at Hand of the Law. Thank you for tuning in and stay stylish.